This is the ballad of Hollywood Jack and the Rage Cage And Hollywood Jack hit the big time and went to make movies From iHeartRadio, the Based on True Events anthology We chronicle true events in the Hollywood tradition That is to say, adhering to the facts As long as the facts don't get in the way of a good story First up the Don, the definitive 24-episode podcast series on Hollywood producer Don Simpson. Episode 2, Don and the Fabulous Alan Carr. Don's foyer was filled with condolence flowers, massive, ornate, over-the-top flower arrangements typical for Hollywood. The arrangement that stood out above all others were those sent from Alan Carr, film producer of Greece. There were tropicals like birds of paradise and protea and palm fronds and monstera leaves, and romance flowers like carnations and tea roses and baby's breath. In the centerpiece was anthurium, a tacky, plastic-looking, finger-shaped flower that Pierce noted looked like a penis on a platter. He chuckled to himself. Of course, the flowers could only have been from the flamboyant, fabulous Alan Carr, at the time the only openly gay producer in Hollywood. Pierce knew that Don and Alan had once been close friends, having made both Grease and the sequel Grease 2 while together at Paramount. But Alan, like Don, had been something of a recluse in his later years. Visiting Alan Carr might not have seemed like the logical next step to find out what might have happened to Don, but to understand why Pierce felt a sense of urgency to go see Alan Carr, we need to flash back to two nights earlier. It was the night before the wake at Morton's. Pierce had just arrived in town. He was picked up at LAX by a young man in a Lamborghini. The young man is Royce Newton, Don's former drug dealer. It was Royce Newton that had called Pierce to tell him of Don's death. Royce was very strung out at the time. It was clear he was upset about Don's death. Not just because he had lost a friend, but because he was a major cocaine dealer who dealt cocaine to a famous Hollywood producer who had reportedly died on a toilet reading a biography of Oliver Stone. Royce was worried. Had his cocaine killed Don? He needed to know. So Pierce flies to town on Royce's dime. Royce picks up Pierce at the airport. Pierce has never ridden in a $200,000 car with scissor doors, nor has he ridden with a drug dealer who likes to drive really, really fast. We are weaving down the Pacific Coast Highway, just north of Santa Monica Pier. Royce reaches his hand out of the car, clipping the plastic Medean reflectors, domino rally style, as we pass Mercedes and Maseratis at tremendous speed. A visual on Royce. Pierce describes him as Christian Slater in Pump Up the Volume, Live Fast, Die Young. Ray-Bans, a black and gold patterned Versace silk shirt unbuttoned down to his navel, acid wash, cut off jeans. Altogether a laughable sight in London but somehow ineffably cool in the neon-lit L.A. nightscape. I reach for my tape recorder and am relieved to find it still in my breast pocket, tucked behind that stolen photo of Don. I try to engage Royce in pointed conversation, but he cannot hear me against the wind. At a red light somewhere past Jeffrey's, Royce offers me cocaine, clandestinely squirreled away in the amulet necklace resting on his pectorals. Although I admire the cunning and tradecraft, I demure. Royce crudely shovels and snorts two dollops, spilling a third onto his jean shorts. He offers again. Bro, it'll numb the pain. Royce speaks in rapid-fire coquette speech. 
What Royce wants is proof that his drugs were not the reason Don died. And since Don has always spoken highly of Pierce through the years, Royce thought he was the man to call. Pierce is privately touched by the sentiment. He takes a hit of cocaine, failing to block out the obvious question in his mind. Royce, did we just do the same coke you sold Don? The coke that lightly took out Hollywood's most accomplished drug fiend? Pierce arrives at the beachfront colony Point Doom, or Point Doom, D-O-O-M, as Don liked to call it, as you knew you were doomed to a decadent lost weekend once you arrived. Malibu at the time was a 27-mile coastline with no hotels and nothing to attract the traveler's dollar, and that is just how the rich and beautiful residents prefer it. In the days of the old studio system, the studios loaned out set designers to construct beach bungalows where stars like Clara Bow and Ronald Coleman and Barbara Stanwyck could host their trysts and illicit parties cloistered away from the public and the press. In the 90s, the colony catered to the likes of drug dealers like Royce Newton. Pierce follows Royce into his beachfront rental. There's a party going on, the kind of party that seems to have been going on for days. For a moment, everyone stops as Royce and Pierce enter. I feel their stares. If my cravat didn't already out me as an outsider, my age certainly does. I'm a decade their senior and likely could have fathered, I fear, quite a few of them. I attempt to decline a cup of orange hazy drink called Hunch Punch, poured from a crystal bowl into red plastic cups. I sip it. When in Rome. Royce casually mentions Julia is upstairs. Julia being the legendary Julia Phillips, the first woman ever to win an Oscar for producing. You can imagine what a trip this is for a Jewish girl from Great Neck. Tonight I get to win an Academy Award and meet Elizabeth Taylor all in the same moment. Thank you so much. Julia was high on three Valium, two joints, a diet pill, a few hits of Coke, and a glass and a half of wine when she accepted the award. After winning for the sting, she produced Taxi Driver and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Not a bad stretch for any producer, let alone the only woman in the Hollywood Boys Club of Oscar winners. Pierce was excited. He knew Julia and Don had been good friends. They even dated for a short time. She even wrote about it, describing Don in her memoir, I have a real weakness for ape-like men. Maybe because I like that physically, they remind me of exactly what I'm dealing with. Don and Julia were yin and yang. Julia was the queen of the art house film and Don the king of the blockbuster. They were both Olympian talkers who loved nothing more than to get high on coke and talk movies. Pierce, a bit queasy from the hunch punch in Royce's coke, wanders off in search of Don's old friend. The layout of the home appears labyrinthian. Door after door opening into empty rooms. I hear what I think are coyotes howling. A surreal sound as I remind myself I'm at the sea. And then I distinguish the sound. Blood-curdling, human screams. Pierce opens the door to the master bedroom. It is lit by the blue glow of the television and little else. What he finds in the waterbed, a circular monstrosity in the center of the room, is not Julia Phillips, but a petite, naked woman with large breast implants. I search for a sheet or towel to swaddle her. She screams louder. The music from the living room has died down, replaced by a stampede of footsteps. Royce enters, followed by the hosts. He knows her intimately. Her name is Autumn Weston. Autumn Weston was Royce's ex-girlfriend. She's toasted, says a partygoer in a chilly monotone. 
there are compression marks on her temples. Pierce recognized the marks could only have come from electroshock therapy. It's clear that Pierce wasn't supposed to open the bedroom door and see Autumn Weston. Royce enters and not so politely asks Pierce to please leave. We come out of the flashback to present day. Pierce has returned to the Beverly Motor Lodge by way of rocket video on La Brea to rent Grease 1 and Grease 2. latter, most notable for being the flop that led to Don's firing as an executive at Paramount. What sparked his interest to rewatch the movie was a nagging sense that he had seen Royce Newton's ex-girlfriend Autumn Weston in the film. On a hunch, he sought to connect the dots to the condolence flowers in the foyer from the producer of the Grease films, Alan Carr, and the actress, Adam Weston. His hunch proved right. Pierce learned that Autumn Weston had an uncredited role as a background player in Michelle Pfeiffer's Pink Lady Posse in Grease 2, which was produced by Alan Carr and overseen by Don at Paramount. The question was, how did it all connect? In a bit of deja vu, Pierce found himself in front of another magnificent Golden Triangle estate. This one in Benedict Canyon, just one canyon over from Don. Where Don's estate had traces of decadence and vice, Alan Carr's estate screamed excess. It was once the old Bergman estate, where a married Ingrid Bergman had a torrid affair with her husband's house guest, Roberto Rossellini. Pierce introduced himself to the housekeeper as a dear friend of Don Simpson. This time, there was no need for code-switching shenanigans to talk his way onto the premises. Like in a Raymond Chandler novel, Pierce had quickly become accustomed to taking advantage of the lag time between the housekeeper finding the owner and the precious seconds available to survey the surroundings. He moved quickly down the hallway finding an entertainment room designed completely in pink. It was called the Olivia Newton-John Room. There was even a sign engraved in copper to let you know it. He felt like he was inside Rydell High singing and dancing to Shamalamalama Ding Dong. He wanted to linger and take it all in. But he had a job to do. He followed the music leading to what looked like stairs to the basement. When he reached the bottom of the stairs, he found himself standing under a giant disco ball over a dance floor surrounded by waterbeds and shag rugs. Pierce had heard of Alan Carr's wild 70s disco parties, the only party in town where the movie stars and the rock stars would intersect, where gays and straights hung out together and sexual identity was fluid. The parties rivaled the Playboy Mansion, but instead of Playboy bunnies, Alan Carr had the Twinkies, young, buff, gay men new to town looking to make it in showbiz. The finest Twinkies were hand-selected as boyfriends for the ballet dancer Rudolf Nureyev. While Nureyev was being entertained downstairs, upstairs on the pool deck, champagne was flowing and cocaine was served on platters. Alan was the hottest producer in town and Don was the man Alan credited for getting him the green light. Pierce hears a voice call out, Hello there. He spies cameras on the ceiling. How long was Alan watching him? He suddenly felt flush. He tried to exit the room only to find a burly security guard had blocked the door. Alan's voice again comes over the speaker, Wizard of Oz-like. Everyone from Mick Jagger to Gilbert Godfrey has danced in his discotheque. Pierce now has the opportunity to shake it alongside the greats who have come before him. 
Pierce begins to fear he might be held captive inside an Egyptian discotheque on a Beverly Hills estate unless he follows orders to shake it. He has only one dance move, a sort of spread leg Saturday Night Fever homage. He repeated the move maniacally, like a robot who's been short-circuited. He wasn't half bad, judging by Alan's response. Pierce identifies himself. Alan Carr replies he stopped talking to the press in 1989. Pierce asks if he might speak to him about Don Simpson. Alan falls silent, a long beat, and then instructs the security guard to bring him upstairs. A guard leads me through rooms painted in reds and purples, filled with Lalique and Baccarat crystal and zebra rugs and Borsellino mirrors. The decor becomes even more sparkly as we draw nearer Alan's master bedroom. Alan is on the balcony. A Santa Ana breeze blows up his caftan, revealing his bare calves. Alan is very short and very fat, easily weighing over 20 stone. There's a saying that success doesn't change you, it amplifies you. Alan, all the more so. Before I can even sit down, Alan wants to know if I have a tape recorder. He forces me to take it out of my pocket. I set it down in front of him. He presses play. Alan Carr in interviews sounds like this. Listen, let's face it, Hollywood is not dead. Movies are more glamorous than ever. I'm a big believer in the business. He played the part of the lively, flamboyant gay party boy. He knew, just as Don did, that a producer needed a shtick. For Alan, it was to be known as the fabulous Alan Carr, the first openly gay Hollywood producer. But offstage, when he wasn't hustling movies or charming his guests at his lavish parties, Alan sounded like a completely different person, more sober, matter-of-fact. Here's Alan talking about Don and making Grease. We met in 76. He hired me to help market Saturday Night Fever. Uh, the rough cut was a mess. The studio wanted sizzle, and the filmmakers delivered mean streets. Harry Italians arguing over meatballs. It was depressing. Don worked magic in post, though. He gave it sex. He gave it glamour. Disco Rocky, we called it. Don delivered a dance picture, and that's how I marketed it. It was a, a $3 million movie. Guess what we grossed? $200 million. Don and I had brought back the movie musical in the 1970s. I don't know about England, but over here, things were bleak. Jimmy Carter telling us to turn off our lights to save on our electricity bill. Gas station lights around the block. Our movies were supposed to reflect the mood of the country, but Don and I said, no, wouldn't the country be better off if it reflected the mood of the movies? And we were right. You would think a $200 million haul would get us a green light to make our next picture, but no. Alan was speaking of his film, Grease. That was my baby. Danny and Sandy and Rizzo and Kanicki, they were all my babies. Don and I walk into Paramount. We say to Diller and Iser, now is the time for a candy-colored musical set in the 1950s, but they're still stuck in Vietnam, making slit-your-wrist neorealism. They just greenlighted another Cassavetes movie. The film was Mikey and Nicky, starring Cassavetes and Peter Falk, directed by Elaine May. May shot over one million feet of film, three times that of Gone with the Wind. The budget ballooned to over four million. It was said that May had hidden the footage during post-production when Paramount tried to assume final cut. 
another low-lit money loser about losers tired of losing, because that's what was happening in America. Razzo Rizzo's and Travis Bickler's losers and sociopaths. And so we come in and pitch a cotton candy, shovelum and ding-dong. You've got done with the hippie Serpico beard, a real hustler in black leather, all bluster and, and showmanship, and Alan Carr, a gay man in owl glasses known for wearing caftans and blowing air kisses, and somehow, together, we made a great team. Because we were really passionate. We really believed in what we were making. So Don and Alan went in and pitched the movie. They acted out scenes with Don playing Danny Zuko and Alan playing Sandy. They did the dance numbers sliding across the floor. They sang all the songs. And by the time they finished Go Grease Lightning, there was a chilly silence in the room. We might not get the green light here. My dream is dying on life support right there on the floor of Paramount, and I can't revive her. And then Don says something I'll never forget. He says, you have to trust Alan Carr's vision completely. Now, I've never made a movie. And Don's only made one movie, Saturday Night Fever, and he's telling his bosses with complete certainty that he has to trust Alan Carr's vision. And the reason they have to trust him is because Alan is a gay genius. Not a genius, a gay genius. Alan, Don said, marketed Saturday Night Fever by making John Travolta a gay icon. Unbeknownst to a heterosexual audience that loved Travolta's heterosexual qualities that were actually subversive gay qualities. That was the secret formula. Gay subversion, Don said, had been going on in the movies since the talkies. Gay men, like Alan, have been picking our John Wayne heroes, our Peter Lorre villains, our Cary Grant leading men. They've been choosing our clothes, our music, our home decor, on and on and on. It's a magnificent speech, and at the end, they gave us six million bucks and a green light to start immediately. I tell them we'll come back six months later with a box office that doubles Saturday Night Fever. And that's what it came in at, $400 million. But it wasn't about the box office. It was about family. It was about our movie, our little movie that could. We actually had Elvis to play the teen angel. He OD'd before we started filming. Our favorite porn star, Harry Reams, was set to play Coach Calhoun. The studio replaced him with Sid Caesar, but those were the big swings we were taking. Everybody, everybody wanted to come to set. Jackie O visited Kissinger, Nancy Sinatra, Florence Henderson. It was a wonderful party. It was the best time of my life. At this point, Alan and Pierce had been sitting for hours. Pierce had become so engrossed in Alan's stories, he hadn't asked a single question. Pierce finally tried to ask about Don, but Alan abruptly changed the subject. There was a shift in tone. Alan asked if Pierce had seen his Oscars telecast. He was referring to the 1989 Oscars that Alan produced. It was infamous for the opening number with host Rob Lowe. Alan had hired Lowe fresh off his sex tape scandal. In which Lowe picked up two girls while in Atlanta attending the Democratic National Convention in the summer of 1988 and videotaped them having sex with each other. One of those girls turned out to be 16 years old, and her mother filed a civil suit against Lowe. The only thing more embarrassing for Lowe than a sex tape scandal was singing Proud Mary at the Oscars in a duet with the Disneyland actress playing Snow White. Left the dwarves behind, came to town to stay. Lights keep on burning, candles keep on 
There was a long silence. Pierce waited for Alan to reveal more, but he had drifted, rambling on a variety of tangents, including the tragedy of the actress Merle Oberon, whose mother was 12 years old when she gave birth to Merle, and how Merle's horrible car accident left her permanently scarred, and how Merle's determination to continue acting was both courageous and tragic. Alan never tired of these stories of dashed dreams. It was only near the very end of their conversation that Alan returned to Don. He mentioned a 20th anniversary for Greece and the party he failed to attend. I couldn't bear to return to Rideau Eye again. Pierce made a mental note. Alan didn't say he couldn't bear to see the old cast again, but rather he couldn't bear to see Rydell High again, a fictitious high school that doesn't exist but in Alan's fantasy. Pierce would later analyze the exchange on his drive back to the hotel. To speak of Rydell High as if it were a real place gave me a thought. That was exactly what it was to Alan. A real place. I knew instantly what all of Alan's pain and suffering was about. Greece was a personal film for Alan. Where straight audiences like me saw a campy musical of high school romance, for Alan, the large-scale spectacle was built to mask a large-scale hole in his heart. An innocent act of high school sweethearts holding hands down the hallway wasn't an innocent act for Alan, but a source of immense pain, knowing their normal would never be his. A glance, a stolen kiss, the shared experiences of romantic love and loss of innocence, they were all off-limits for a gay high school boy. And there was nowhere to escape, not in the movies, not in television, where the only gay TV character was a straight character pretending to be gay, sashaying across the screen, his affection inciting derision and eye-rolling from his landlord, Mr. Furley. It was only a year earlier that the American Psychiatric Association had removed homosexuality from its list of psychiatric disorders. In making the most rose-coloured ecstatic high school experience he could possibly imagine, Alan had sought to paint over his own experience. Pierce would replay the last part of the tape back at his hotel room. And of course Don understood my reservations not to go back to Rideau High. I perk up when Alan makes a connection with Don. Don fell in love with spectacle just as I had. That's why we became shaman. To escape it all. To escape what, specifically, I ask? You know, Don Simpson was the only person in the world more gay-obsessed than I was. Pierce was now very confused. He tried to get Alan to elaborate. Alan was quite cryptic at first, quoting Orwell on Kipling. 
one has a sense of being seduced by something spurious and yet unquestionably seduced. Who seduced Don? Was Don gay? I never saw anything. But have you spoken to Paul? Paul Bartel? He always said his one regret was not having sex with Don when he had the opportunity. Paul and Don co-wrote a movie together called Cannonball that Paul directed. They were sharing a hotel together for the premiere of the film at the Deauville Film Festival. Don told Paul about a homosexual experience he had in high school and how he's always been open to gay sex. Peter Biskin verifies Alan's recounting of Paul's remarks in his book, Easy Rider, Raging Bulls. Back at the hotel, Pierce tries to make sense of Alan's comments. Here you had a man who was eulogized at his wake at Morton's as the epitome of heterosexual virility and who promoted that virility to millions of young teenage boys and girls across America. Tom Cruise, shirtless, playing beach volleyball. Richard Gere lifting weights upside down in his underwear in American Gigolo. This was Don's unique vision of straight male masculinity. And that masculinity created Don's billion-dollar empire. And if, let us suppose, Don had been exposed for his hidden, or not-so-hidden, homosexual experimentation, how could Don be allowed to go on making his movies? The industry would laugh him out of the room. Pierce now recalls the laughter at the wake at Morton's in a whole new light. Were they suggesting just that when they chuckled over the images of a rugged Don with his shirt off, carrying a firearm? Was Don's gay secret, if it had any truth, not so secret? And if so, what did Don's sexuality have to do with Don's death? Listen to The Don on the iHeartRadio Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimers for Episode 2. First, the scene where Don and Alan pitched the Paramount Brass on Grease did not happen as we scripted it, but Don was instrumental in getting the movie made. Don loved musicals nearly as much as Alan Carr did. He grew up in the 1950s, a self-proclaimed greaser with a leather jacket. In Alan Carr, Don had a partner who shared his love of the 50s. Alan was considered a marketing genius. He had been hired to run the Oscar campaign for The Deer Hunter and was widely credited with revolutionizing how Oscar films would be marketed. Alan, like Don, believed in his superpower of persuasion. He was a great pitchman who could market a big idea no matter how absurd the big idea may be. This would catch up to Alan when he made his epic musical flop, Can't Stop the Music, or what his crew called, Can't Stop the Cocaine. The opening credit sequence of Steve Gutenberg in tight shorts roller skating through New York is all you need to see to know that Alan's vision was off the rails bonkers. Disclaimer 2. Don's Malibu drug dealer to the stars, Royce Newton, is a composite character who most resembles Don's drug dealer, Race Newman. Race was a good-looking surfer kid from Ventura who was widely considered the top gun of celebrity coke dealers. He was so well-known that Johnny Cochran, O.J. Simpson's lawyer, featured Race as a key figure in his theory that O.J.'s wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, was a cokehead and that she owed money to a Colombian cocaine cartel, a cartel that Royce was said to have been working for when he sold Nicole the coke. Disclaimer 3. Royce's girlfriend, Autumn Weston, is fictitious. She did not play an uncredited role in Grease 2. 
Autumn Weston is a composite based on a number of actresses who were under the supervision of Don's real-life Dr. Feelgoods, Dr. Naomi Frederick and Dr. Robert Gurner. The use of overprescribed shock therapy was not uncommonly used by these doctors. We'll dig deeper into Don's Dr. Feelgoods and the connection to Autumn Weston and Royce Newton as the story progresses. Disclaimer 4. Our composite character Pierce, of course, never met the film producer Julia Phillips, but Julia Phillips and Don did hang out at Julia's house in Malibu during the Easy Rider Raging Bulls period, where all the major filmmakers and movie starlets hung out sunbathing topless outside of Julia's groovy pad at Trancas Beach. Don was there spending much of his time with Paul Schrader. They would later work together on American Gigolo. Julia and Don were both Olympian late-night talkers who loved nothing more than snorting cocaine and talking about movies. Don thought Julia was the smartest, wittiest, ballsiest producer around. They had a brief fling while holed up in a New York hotel waiting for a meeting with Robert Redford. The fling, if you can even call it that, was short-lived, as was Julia's career. Where Don was able to sustain a 20-year co-cabot in the film industry, Julia was out of the game by 1980. After producing The Sting, Taxi Driver, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, three of the great films of the 70s, and becoming the first woman ever to win an Academy Award for producing, Julia would never make another movie again. 